Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. Good leaders tend to get everybody else around them better than them. Mm -hmm. And the most successful leaders are the people that have got everybody around them better than them. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Andy Donaldson. Andy's the founder and director of HitSearch and Revenue Growth Agency. Both are marketing agencies focused on growth for scaled and premium e-commerce businesses. With over 20 years of experience, Andy helped premium retail brands grow their revenue by 50% year-on-year profitably. Andy joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Andy. It's great to have you with us. My pleasure. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So can you tell us a little bit about your organisation and the problems that you're solving currently, please? Yes. So um, I'm the founder and director of a business called the Revenue Growth Agency. Um, We're based in the UK, but we help uh, luxury retail brands primarily uh, build their brand and grow their revenue, uh, not just in the UK, but uh, across, uh, across the globe too. So in terms of what we're solving for them, a lot of the time uh, it is growth problems or challenges, now whether that's building brand or moving into a new market, um, but most of it boils down into a, a need to get from a particular point in their revenue growth to the next level. So there's these sort of ceilings that businesses tend to get to. Um, obviously, the most common one is the first million, um, and then it seems to be the, the third million, then it seems to be the fifth million, then it seems to jump to the tenth million. Mm-hmm. And to these areas, there is a variety of different challenges that e-commerce brands face, uh, and our responsibility is to identify which phase they're at uh, and give them a solution to get past that revenue ceiling that uh, that they're at at the minute. Fantastic, fantastic! And as a leader of that kind of organisation, solving those challenges for for other businesses, what are you up against yourself at the moment? What's on your desk currently? I think the, the the most common one at the minute is this sort of um, cost of living crisis that's going on at the minute and the impact that has on the spare cash people have got in the pocket. And of course, that <clears throat> has an impact into the uh, the sort of e-commerce world, so what people are prepared to spend. Um, so the most common challenge that we're facing is that clients want to grow, uh, but there are these sort of shackles on them at the moment. So uh, our we sort of pivoted our strategy a little bit away from um, sort of a, a top line growth. And we speak to clients about both top line and also growing margin now as well and how to go about yeah. So the challenge is sort of shifted slightly. Um, but if you think about e-commerce, I mean, e-commerce as a whole is still growing. You mm-hmm. know, still more and more people are, are moving online. I think the boom during COVID is sort of settled a little now. So we're sort of finding what the new norm is for online uh, shopping generally across all the different sort of uh, sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the challenge for, for the sort of C-suite of these big retailers now is there is a requirement to continue to grow and keep audiences interested and engaged with the brand is one side, but actually strategies now need to change a little to become much more focused on profitability and mm-hmm. and, and long, long-term long longevity, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, I'm making an assumption, I'm not an e-commerce retailer myself, but are you sort of up against the, the UX, UI side of things with how easy Amazon have made it for people to shop online versus going to the individual e-commerce stores? Um, I mean, 
it depends which way, whether the glass is half full or half empty on that one. <laughs> Amazon presents e-commerce businesses with a really good opportunity. It's a marketplace that uh, they can enter into and uh, and certainly get more uh, revenue out of. Um, but yeah, they invest billions of pounds into making that whole process so seamless and, and quick mm-hmm. in terms of the logistics and fulfillment side of things. Uh, so it does present some challenges. Well, I think one of the conversations that I'm having with e-commerce brands is just making that whole user journey um, as simple as possible and actually going back and revisiting it and revisiting things like audiences. Mm-hmm. You're bringing the right people to a website. Um, then in theory, um, your conversion rate should be better if they are already uh-huh. interested in your products, they are pre-interested and then pre-engaged with your brand and almost um, know what you're all about before they arrive at the site then conversion rate and user experience will improve anyway. Okay. Uh, then we can start to, part of what we do is part of that focus on increasing profitability is looking at user experience and conversion rate. And within the agency, we have ex- experts that that look at that. And that is certainly, it's a good point to raise because certainly in the last two or three years, that's become an even bigger part of what e-commerce brands are. Mm. Yeah, because if you think about it, if your you know, conversion rate uh, can be improved by even half a percent, and you're a five million pound business. It's a mm-hmm. huge amount of free revenue, really, that yeah. you were uh, not aware of, um, and it, it should, in theory, be profitable revenue as well. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it depends on how you look at it. Amazon has brought, uh, as, as far as I see, it's another opportunity to go after a, a customer that you may not have seen and, and a revenue that you wouldn't have had. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. And I think now that the world is. Uh, almost everything's available to almost everybody at almost any time yeah. of day isn't it and i think it needs to be become it needs to become more about the experience and retail i think will go the same way i think like we've got meadow hall on our doorstep for example you don't nip there for something that you need you probably order it on amazon what you nip to meadow hall for is to be able to sit and have a coffee and maybe have a walk around or meet people yeah. so i think the experience piece is is going to become even more important I agree. I think one thing that you've touched on there, which is really important, and I think it's been forgotten about in the e-commerce world, and it's something that we talk very often about as part of our our strategy, and that is the storytelling part Mm -hmm. um, of of what brands do. Yes, we can get products around the corner in a local shop. Yes, we can go to Amazon and be delivered sometimes on the same day. But what we're missing out on when we look at the likes of Amazon is the story of that individual brand that's selling that product lost in amongst you know, 20, 30,000 different retailers selling the same thing. And what what people really want is human connection. Generally, boil everything down. We look at our relationships at home, our relationships in work, our relationships with the C-suite in our business and, and senior teams, and, and right down to the, uh, to, to, you know, uh, the security people on the gate. Everybody mm-hmm. looking for human interaction. And I think that's what's been forgotten by, um, by brands. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit about how uh, what I'm reading at the minute, bookwise later on actually, because um, that's something that that there's interest in. It's all about how to construct the story, um, and we talk to clients about a, a growth framework that we call build, story, tell, and sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably ninety percent of retailers that we talk to um, are already pretty proficient at the sell bit. Mm-hmm. But it's the story tell bit that sits in the middle, and the build bit that sits at the start. Those two key things. In 90% of the cases are missing in some form or another. Yeah. Um, so it's about how do you how do you identify an audience and build that very specifically, and then once you've got that audience and it is growing, you've started that wheel turning, 
Um, what is it you say to them that provides that human connection? And normally it's via a story. Okay. And I suppose that's the move away from that utilitarian approach of just, I need it, I need to buy it. It's, I want to buy this one from this brand because I get it yeah. from my people. Yeah. And if you think about it, if if you connect on an emotional stroke human layer uh, as a brand with your audience, um, then it's th- then they will be prepared to spend more on the same product. Mm-hmm. And so margin is higher. And they will also, if you continue to engage with them over a longer period of time with brand, and that story, then the long-term future value increases and therefore the cost of acquiring that customer decreases because mm-hmm. you're all from, from the same essentially. So it is. So a lot of the time I'm trying to explain this with e-commerce brands to think differently. And if they do that, they're in this 10% of e-commerce that isn't doing that, that isn't doing that. And so that provides them with a massive opportunity to get ahead of their competition. Um, yeah. It will stave off. The challenges that the economy is facing at the minute. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the other way to look at it as well is if you've got an audience that's very much engaged with your brand and they're listening to your message, you can also reverse that and you can listen to what they're telling you. You can gather their feedback and exactly. almost build for them. And that's that. That is an extension of storytelling, isn't it? That is involving them in the future story. Mm-hmm. If you are positioning, uh, you go out there to your customers and ask them what they thought of their product and. Uh, and speak to them a bit of detail about what we think or what they think that the brand can change. Is it the fabric? Is it the seams? Is it the fit? Um, mm-hmm. Is it speed of delivery? Uh, and phrase it not just in the classic survey that you get, you know, with an app purchasing something, but you sort of involve them in in how that business is changing moving forward. Um, that's the golden territory that isn't explored currently I don't think as well in e-commerce as it should be so that's what we talk about all the time is that story and the human interaction and interesting enough you know we're on the human podcast and and it is about telling the story now that story can be internally with staff and with leaders um, or it should be externally certainly as well with with your customers Mm -hmm. absolutely it's an interesting time to be where you are doing what you're doing with the, the clients that you're working with yeah, uh, and, and it's it, it's one of those things that it, it's not easy, and I think mm-hmm. that's why uh, brands shy away from it. It's very easy to set up and spend ten grand a month on Google AdWords uh, and produce a return from it, uh, mm-hmm. it to go back to investors or the rest of the board and say, you know, look, we spent ten grand, we got twenty grand back, isn't that great? You know, let's right, can we spend twenty grand to get forty grand? Mm-hmm. The, the answer invariably is is no, uh, and and the reason being is you get to a ceiling. Uh, yes. again spend where you can't sell more product to an audience that doesn't it doesn't know you're there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there needs to be this constant build cycle to get that pot bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger um in order for you to sell more uh, so I, I speak to quite often about uh to clients about you know that are doing the sell bit really well and sort of say well what's the, what's the challenge at the minute and they say well anytime we spend more the return on investment decreases uh is all about they, they are not doing you know all of those cases not doing the build and storytell bit well so they're selling to a pot that's either staying the same size or shrinking more mm-hmm. not. quite difficult to shift the mindset of, of that retailer away from but we've done this for 15 years and it's worked really well yeah. Uh, to yeah but you know you've really got to think differently to to get beyond five million to ten million and the same mm-hmm. million to 20 million it, it involves a shift in the mindset and a shift internally yeah, absolutely. It's that old adage, isn't it? What got us here won't get you there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and so 
Taking a look at your experience in your career, I mean, obviously the, the degree in IT makes perfect sense for where you are now, but in terms yes. of your leadership career, how did that evolve? How did that develop? Well, I think the, the word you use is the right one, which is evolve. I, I don't think anybody sets out and says, I want to be a CEO or an MD of a business. Um, I think there's certain attributes that uh, that, that help that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sort of first leadership example as it were was was more in the sort of sporting world as i was i was i was younger i played rugby to a, a reasonably good standard and there was a lot of really good leaders in in the sports world in in my own my own uh, sports world and also uh, leaders that i followed outside of the teams that i played in that really set a very, very good example to uh to follow and most of it in the sporting world was much more about follow my lead rather than okay. so all about actions rather than words mm-hmm. um they were the people that rolled up the sleeves and got stuck in when it was raining on on, on the 20th yeah. of december in a training session in in uh you know in the snow sort of a thing and they were the people that were that were there they were never late they they stood up and, and were accounted for in games and in training and behind the scenes and and they have this natural they have this sort of natural aura about them that just you just wanted to follow and you would follow into the sort of the bowels of hell for them type thing and i think that, that to create that for people it's it's more about just setting an example and doing what you you require of other people to do mm-hmm. um, and so i got that instilled in me in a, in a fairly young age and i transferred that into the into the work environment where when i started managing a small team at the very start of my career it's making sure that you understand that you are happy to do the things that they are, are being asked to do and that you have a certain skill in that area uh, you've done it before you've done the courses you've learned this that and the other but showing them by leadership in terms of demonstration so this is what i'm doing this is how you can do it i'm going to pass my knowledge on to you um, and then my leadership then moved from that into uh, doing some sort of reading and, and self-teaching, really, of how to get sort of better in terms of what I was doing at leading people. And came to a point where you start to realise that good leaders tend to get everybody else around them better than them. Mm-hmm. And the most successful leaders are the people that have got everybody around them better than them. Uh, and it was a real game-changer for me because it, logically a lot of people in leadership might be thinking oh well, i've got to make sure that i'm better than everybody else and i keep everybody beneath me in the structure and make sure that there's you know a hierarchy in place which is a sort of a tall column and i'm at the top of the column and actually the, the my most of my successes have been removing that and, and sort of saying well as long as i can get everybody around me to be better than me essentially making your job redundant mm-hmm. that makes or frees up your time to become even better yes and so and not only is it the right thing to do bringing people around you up to up to a better standard than beyond um, but actually as a selfless task it frees up your time uh, that you become very aware of uh, and it allows you to then read further study further think differently mm-hmm. and start to plan how you want to progress to the next level and how you sort of get there so so yeah started out as, as it's been a bit of, a, of an evolving thing and it still is really, you know, I'm still learning, st- definitely not not got it right, I don't think. Um, 
because there's a lot of commentary at the minute about the imposter syndrome. I think that's very much yeah. a real thing. You know, when you when you sort of at the, at the top or on your way up to the top of a, a small team or a big team or whatever the case may be, I think there's still a lot of people that said they're thinking, "Wow, I'm not sure I should be here," or "Is, is this is this really uh, you know, is this really really for me?" But knowing that everybody else in the C-suite is thinking the same thing, or most people are thinking the yeah. same. Uh, you know, that sort of helps a little bit. But yeah, it's been evolving really over the last 15 years. Yeah. I think going back to the imposter syndrome, I'd almost be concerned if leaders didn't have that. I think it's yeah. when the ego gets, like you said, when the ego gets in the way, that's when you're in real trouble as a, as a leader. So I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I grapple with imposter syndrome, but sometimes I welcome it. Most of yeah. the time, most I think of the time. It's, it keeps you on your, on your toes, though. Yeah. If you're yeah. sitting there thinking, wow, you know, it, what, what this is this is great but you know what have i done to deserve this type of thing or, or you know you've got to really then start looking back at what you've done to get there and you realize that you've done a lot yeah yeah you've you've read a lot, thought a lot you've tried a lot you've failed a lot mm -hmm. a lot and all of those things have got you to, to where you've got to to there so if you think about that um all of the sort of failures more so than the successes i think mm -hmm. that's what built the blocks to get you where you are today sort of a thing um, and then also fuel well if i've done all that in the last 10 15 years then you know really the next 10 15 years i'm just going to continue to build and so you you know if you if you have that mindset you'll continue to get better and better mm -hmm. and better all the time at what you do and uh, and that's that's never a bad thing no no i agree i agree completely and speaking of, of the evolution of your leadership career and, and some of the failures if there was to be a blooper reel of your leadership career are there any slip-ups that you are, one, comfortable to share with us, and two, that you've taken a lesson from that you'd like to talk about? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so I, I think, well, I think there's a lot, uh, as I mentioned just then, there's a lot of failures over the years that where you try things and, and they didn't quite work, mm -hmm. whether it's sort of a, your own new business strategies or your own client management strategies. There's lots of different things that have shaped where I am today that didn't work. Um, but I think that so in terms of the, a big blooper reel, I mentioned before about the, the sort of leadership style, particularly in the rugby environment mm. that, that shaped me early on in my sort of uh, career. Um, and I mentioned that I transferred that across into the business world. Um, the two don't re didn't really mix well then. Okay. The, the the lead from the message was was right to transfer to the business environment, which is lead from the front, um, and uh, and people will follow. Um, but the application in rugby is much more direct, uh, and applying a much more direct approach to to to, to business leading didn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, there was a lot of people that instead of wanting to follow me. Um, thought that it was too sort of dictatorial and it was my way or the highway. It, it actually wasn't, but that's the way it was coming in. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, so that was probably the, the biggest and first blooper um, that shaped how I did things differently moving forward. And I think that's okay as people react to that. Yeah. So I reacted to that very, very quickly and realised that the people around me were not having the best of time because of the way in which that leadership was going and so um, I took the decision to sit everyone down and find out you know an honesty session you know uh, no jobs on the line or anything just tell me what's going on and, and the feedback was that that approach to this is what we're doing let's get it done quickly mm -hmm. uh, a firmness just wasn't really 
um, working. So we devised a different way of doing things. I brought different people in to make different decisions and took some of that responsibility away from me because uh, that then started to work really well. And that was the seed for, actually, if I get more people to do more of the things that I do and focus on getting them better at those things, yeah. that might be something that will work. And that blooper moment turned into actually a moment that stuck with me for the last sort of 15 years uh, we just discussed. So, so yeah, that was the sort of big one. The other ones are all just things that you try. I think if anybody's lying, if they, they sort of say that most of the things that they try work. Yeah. I don't believe that in, in any, in any business. I think most of the things you try won't work. Um, you know, and I think it depends on how, how good you are or how, how lucky you are. I don't know what, you know, if 10% of the things work, um, you're probably doing all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, and I think if you, if you tie that thought into the imposter syndrome, I think that's where it comes from. I think you're trying lots of stuff at the top of a business and and not a lot of it is working. You're thinking maybe it's me, maybe it's just Mm -hmm. something that I'm doing, but actually, you know, if you're trying enough new things and enough uh, exploring enough new avenues, you are going to fail at most of them. And I think just accepting that, you then start to go, all right, okay, fair enough. This has worked and this has worked in the last year and they are doing really well for me. So, okay, let's keep trying and keep testing. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. You're learning all the time, aren't you? I guess the the more you test and fail, um, the more likely you are to get something that works. And and so it sounds as though your approach sounds very, pardon the pun, but very human. It sounds like you've got a lot of humility. You you are looking... um, looking out for your team and your interest in their perspectives. But do you think that those are characteristics that all great leaders need, or is there a common denominator for a successful leader in terms of characteristics? I don't think there is really. I think it's, uh, you've got to bear in mind, you've, you've got a lot of different factors uh, within leadership, um, within each individual. You've got personality, you've got um, uh, sort of ambition, mm-hmm. you've got where they've come from, what their background is. You've got all sorts of um things that are influencing leaders, whether it's you know, of, a, of a small team or whether it's of a massive team, it, there's different inputs into that individual uh, that will shape how they respond. But I think what every leader should have is humility. Mm-hmm. They should have the ability to uh, look back at themselves more than everybody else's mistakes. It's that transparency to say that, you know, it's okay to get things wrong because then people will innovate and they see that, you know, you're setting that example. And it's like the mental health thing as well. It's okay yeah. to be not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes the, the mistake leaders make uh, might be that they pretend that everything is okay and they've got everything and it's all going great and, and all the rest of it, when reality, everybody knows that that's not the case. So uh, it's great that the, this whole mental health movement, which is sort of allowing people, uh, men and women, to sort of say, I'm not doing very well this week or doing very well this month and getting that out there, is brilliant and I think that's a good leadership sort of um, trait as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so it sounds as though we've spoken about your your earlier rugby career, but in terms of your leadership approach, is that is that shaped purely by that early experience? Is there is there somebody that's influenced you in the past or a piece of advice someone's offered you that's helped shape your approach to leadership? Um, not, not necessarily. Um, I mean, I... I Founded an agency called Hit Search um, back in 2007, uh, so 16 years ago, really. Uh, and more recently, the Revenue Growth Agency is sort of born from that. Mm-hmm. So I've been in leadership roles for sort of 
16 years. And even before that, I worked at a big media agency in Manchester for about three or four years. So for the best part of 20 years, I've been in leadership roles, really. So mm-hmm. I've seen lots of different styles and types of leaders. I think as you go, one of the self-reflections should also include looking at others and t- taking bits from yes. them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of, the, one of the worst examples, I think, of leadership was not not in my rugby world and not in my work world, actually, but actually, uh, so I'm a private pilot as well. Uh, and I started my pilot training about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And the worst leadership I've seen is was in my early days at, at pilot training. <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of the um, the instructors are from a very, very, very old school um, way of thinking. Okay. Um, which is very shouty. Um, it's very, I can't believe you've not done that right. Uh, it's it's very admonishing uh, okay. and degrading to a certain degree. Um, and you are literally um, for, you've got to get a certain amount of hours before you can, uh, you're allowed to, to, to sort of take your skills test, your pilot's license skills test, which is 45 hours. And most people sort of get to about 65 until they're at the, st- the standard to be able to pass their pilot's license. Uh, so, I was, so I was essentially, like, like most trainee pilots, was kicked around the skies for 60 hours, um, you know, told that this was rubbish and that's rubbish and this is rubbish and that's rubbish, you can't do that and this is no good and you'll never do this and you can't do this. And then one day they just say, okay, you're ready for your test. <laughs> and it's like, where did that come from? You know, uh, the... Uh, and it's the same for your first solo. You know, the, the, after about 20 hours, 25 hours, they're looking to make you sort of fly solo first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the first 20 hours, it was, you know, in the standard, this is not good enough. You'll, you'll never get here by this time. If you don't do this, 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 this. Um, and then one day, the instructor just got out and said, right, go and do your first solo. <laughs> so it's just a really, and I was not expecting it uh, at all. It's just a really, really poor way of, um, the method is to sort of kick you around a little bit to, to mm-hmm. pull the edges off you so that you sort of fit this mold. Um, but in terms of how I like to learn, it was at the complete opposite end of the, the spectrum. Uh, and if it wasn't for my uh, sort of determination uh, at anything that I do, I do not quit at anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if it wasn't for that, I would have given up after probably the third hour, the third lesson. Wow. Um, and it was, it, I remember at every lesson I used to come home and uh, my wife would say, how did you get on? And it was just, it was just a shake there. Because <laughs> she's a senior leader in in, uh, in education, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an executive head teacher in, in two schools. And she, you know, her leadership uh, is, is very similar to mine, which is, uh, you know, uh, a human focused approach with, and I was explaining how this lesson went and, she was like, wow, how are they still doing this? Uh, and it was not just me. It was, you know, I've had sort of four or five instructors over the last eight years doing various bits and pieces. And bar one or two, they are all exactly the same. They seem to have just been taught by this old school sort of RAF type mentality where you yeah. otherwise you're out type thing, you know. So, so to answer your question in a rather long-winded way, it's actually some of the best examples of poor leadership. Uh, and poor direction of actually being from outside of the business world, really. And I think that's important to absorb things from every angle, really, you know. Yeah. 
It'd be really interesting for me, anyway, maybe not for other people, but it would be really interesting for me to understand sort of what the rationale is behind that leadership style. Like, is it just that it's so would I. osmosis or because the, the stakes are so high that they feel they have to be in that, you know, in that regard? It'd be really interesting to understand if it just happens to be the case because they've all been taught by the same person and it's come down the ranks or... yeah. I don't know. I would lo- I'd love to know myself because I, I remember thinking, and I've spoken to other uh, pilots that were students at the time, and, and it was exactly the same mm. for, for for them. It, it wasn't something that I was doing necessarily. That was that it was because it was everybody I spoke to was the same, you know. And, oh, yeah. and there'd be certain personalities in the sort of instructor world where they would be. You, you would every, all the students would know they're the worst, okay. them, but the rest are sort of still pretty pretty like that i think yeah. this is sort of eight nine years ago i think it's changed a lot now i've had every year you have to go for sort of revalidation training and stuff for you, to keep your license and your ratings and and the instructors that i work with now are you know much more professional and they're a lot more uh, they're much more thinking about the, the way in which you are learning or you're absorbing information and they want that much more now but certainly eight nine years ago that was not the case so yeah, yeah. <laughs> gone on in the last eight years to change that but it would be an interesting case study it would for me and so in terms of advice that you'd offer someone that was looking either to get into leadership or you know about to take a step up into that that leadership role is there any advice that particularly stands out that you would want to share with them i think apart from understand that you don't know everything won't know everything just accept that Mm -hmm. Um, and the second thing is that if you look back in your life there's various stages where you've had to jump off the cliff there's only so much preparation uh, that can go into it uh, and thinking and training and planning and all that sort of stuff. Even with the best preparation and planning, when you're moving into a leadership role or whether it's up the ladder or whatever the case may be within the leadership function, you're just going to have to jump off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm teaching my kids to swim at the minute. And the first thing I did was get them to jump in the deep end so that I could, you know, hold them and, and, and yeah. you know, it was there. Uh, but to catch them, but you know, get into the deep end and understand that you know that's that sometimes that is the best way to learn, and don't be afraid of jumping into the deep end, uh, metaphorically or physically, uh, as long as there's some safety margins there. So in yeah. my case with the kids, I'm in there and can catch them, and and in a business sense that you've got people around you that are willing to help and not see you fail. Yeah, and I think one of the things if you're going for an interview with, with C-suite or or a senior leadership role or even a junior leadership role, just check on the support structure um, because a lot of the time people around you want you to fail. Um, and I think trying to surround you with people that are not like that um, or most people that are not like that, I think will make sure that you, you succeed. But yeah, just be aware that you're going to have to jump off that cliff at some some stage and if you can put some sort of support structure around your outside your family, that's going to help you. Yeah, great advice. In, in terms of leaders, past or present, famous or otherwise, and discounting the, the pilot training, is there any leaders, past or present, that you particularly admire? And if so, what is it about them? Well, um, that's a good good question. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of them. And naturally, I go back to the sporting world for one and the business world for one that jumped to mind. Okay. The first one is probably uh, Martin Johnson. So he was the England captain for for many, many years. Um, And he epitomised that whole thing I spoke about at the start where leading from the front, you know, he was the first to the tackle, he was the first to the breakdown, he was the first to 
to do everything and some things unsavory at sometimes. But um, you know, he people would follow him into you know a blazing fire because they believed in him that much. So that inspired mm-hmm. me a little bit. It didn't quite translate very well off the rugby field uh, and into the business world, as we've, as we've already discussed for me. But uh, as, as in my first, first sort of blooper, um, but nonetheless, that stands out and still does today. I think in the business world, it's a bit cliche, but Steve Jobs um, is 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 a fantastic leader. I think because of that storytelling aspect, okay. what he does, his whole method of getting people on board, whether it's customers or whether it's internal staff, with his vision, mm-hmm. would very very clearly and simply construct a story that resonated very very well with whoever he was trying to connect with. Yeah. I remember a speech he did, I think it was in the late 90s, maybe, um, where they he talked a bit about moving uh, the brand into the Apple into the next era. And that next era, still, most brands are still replicating today, which is the brand takes a second and the products take a second string to what the products do for the people that use them. Yeah. Uh, he brought a few examples up. So Nike, for example, they never ever talk, they sell shoes, but they never ever talk about the shoes uh, or the materials or how good the shoelaces are or the rubber that goes underneath or how soft they are. They champion athletes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they want to help athletes become faster and quicker and safer. And, and so they spend all of their time and effort talking about how Nike are doing that for athletes. Oh, and by the way, we make some shoes and they're cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he wanted to sort of replicate that a little bit. And uh, and he wanted to uh, make Apple this sort of visionary uh, product uh, and an aspirational product that isn't a computer, you know, isn't a microchip in a box. Yeah. It, the things that you can do with it can change lives. And so he managed to create this whole story, uh, which I just found fascinating at the time. And I've watched it numerous times uh, since. Um, maybe we can sort of put a link on, on it somewhere. I can send you a link to it. But yeah. it, it's just, uh, it, at the time, it was revolutionary. And people are still copying it now. You know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stories that I... Uh, sort of create for clients and how we get that out there is influenced by that. It's very much, you know, if you're selling a pair of shoes, you, uh, there's thousands of retailers that sell shoes. Yeah. Uh, there's thousands of retailers that sell sustainable shoes uh, and recycled shoes and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But what what there isn't a thousand retailers is what that brand's personality is and what that story is, where it came from and what the influences are. And I think that's what Steve Jobs is trying to get at. And that's what really motivates me when, I, when I'm talking about that. So from a, I think Martin Johnson, from a sort of a pure old school, maybe uh, lead. And I think Steve Jobs, from a visionary point of view, he would tell a story and he'd have thousands of people queued up outside an Apple store to yeah. buy whatever he's told them. And sometimes I'm sure they'd be outside the queue, not actually knowing what they're buying. <laughs> just got it. And they just said, I need to be part of that movement. Let's go and buy some Apple products, you know, and then, that, and then of course, it's then about critical mass, isn't it? You've got um, mm-hmm. buying products and the uh, and every two years they did the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. So and I think it was with him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I concur on that. It's really well illustrated in um, Simon Sinek's Golden Circle. You've seen that TED Talk? Yeah, really yeah, well he's great as well. Yeah, yeah. 
And and so in terms of people that have influenced you and what you're consuming, books that you're reading, I'm always really, you probably see the bookshelf behind me, but I'm always really interested in what people are reading. So what's either influenced you, what's helped you in the past, what you'd recommend for others, or just what's helped you. Everybody needs that brain melt moment, don't they? Come the weekend yeah. or come the holiday. You know, what kind of things are you consuming that have helped you in your leadership path? Well, I'm in the middle of one at the minute, so I can't uh, comment on it as a whole, but I'm reading this book by uh, Donald Miller um, called Building a Story Brand. Okay. Um, clarify your message so customers will listen. It's more from my own perspective of how we, we're sort of communicating with, um, uh, with, with our sort of clients, but it's all about the structure of a story. And again, going back to that Steve Jobs example of how clear and simple uh, it comes across there is a system and a framework to construct that. And a story doesn't necessarily mean a a brand story or or anything else. It can mean just trying to explain something to someone, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, explaining what flying means to me or explaining what leadership means to me. Just how you construct that uh, can be the difference between someone understanding something very, very quickly and very clearly and, and, and getting on board to someone going, yeah, don't quite get that, but, you know, I'm not going to ask anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think by and then what Donald is trying to do here is give the the sort of structure and framework of how you do that uh, to become better at life generally. Uh, but actually, in my example, if I'm talking to clients about how we construct these stories, I can make how I talk to clients much clearer mm-hmm. uh, by following that. So that's something de- definitely uh, that, that, that's worth worth doing. Mm-hmm. One, the, these are two sort of work ones, really. I'm, unfortunately, I said yes. Work ones more than more than personal same. ones, um, yeah. but but yeah, it's a habit of habit of life. Uh, yeah, the other one uh, I'm looking at is just called Sprint. Now there's a, there's all sorts of um, uh, sort of Scrum stroke project management framework uh, that that is that surrounds the sort of Sprint side of it. But this one's called Sprint: How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Five Days, and it's by a, a chap called Jake Nath. and that basically. Um, is a is a book about how you efficiently solve problems, okay. and there's a skill to it. Um, and in the book, uh, they uh, go into some detail about where you start, what the middle point is, and what the end point is. Um, and ironically enough, the end point is once you've gone through these three or four stages to get the answer to what you're looking at, solve the problem, grow the business, wherever it may be. The end point is where I got that. At some stage, you have to jump off a cliff from Mm -hmm. because what they say is that you have to make a decision uh even if it's the wrong one or even if it's not quite the right one you've got to make a decision because making zero decision uh actually not only means you stand still but actually means you're going backwards a little bit and so taking a detour in the wrong direction isn't as bad as as going backwards or doing nothing Uh, also what it sort of says is that if you make a series of small decisions uh, that lead up to the big decision, uh, you're almost guaranteed to get to where you want to get to because mm-hmm. I think lots of small decisions on the way is actually quite easy and quite quick to do rather than unraveling one big massive decision. So it goes into you know how you break down a big problem and make little decisions quickly along the way to get to where you want to get to. So yeah, story one by Donna Miller is really good. Um, and this one by Jake Knapp called Sprint is, is a really good one to help you just sort of churn through ideas quickly and get them answered. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Thank you. And and in terms of the, the challenges that are coming over the horizon for 
leaders at the moment. What's what are your predictions for sort of the next few months and into next year? What what big things are leaders going to be grappling with, or should leaders be grappling with? Um, I think it depends on what sort of sector they're in, really. But more sort of broadly, uh, staff is the key thing. Um, in my industry, keeping and maintaining and uh, engaging with staff so that they don't sort of bounce around. Um, in, in, again, in my industry, is really, really important. Um, there is a real shortage of very, very good people uh, in, in the place that, that we operate. So um, it's, I think my personal challenge is making sure that we're motivating and keeping staff and, uh, and that side of things. I think with the clients that we deal with, the sort of luxury e-commerce brands, I think it's much more about starting to um, look at ways in which they can be a bit more uh, focused on their spend uh, because of obviously the, the climate that we're in. Um, I think the challenge that we're facing with them is to suggest that learn from the first sort of three or four weeks of COVID where a lot of retail brands paused all marketing spend and all marketing activity. Um, and I was talking to a, a, a client that was, um, giving me some really good, honest insights, actually, um, which which is when they paused, they made such a big mistake because what they didn't realise is that okay, they're saving money on marketing, but means that that their audience isn't seeing the products and not buying the products. Yeah, knock on effect in terms of the the sort of supply chain, so fulfilment, warehouse space, product manufacture, product delivery, the whole um, spectrum was affected. Um, happens is they realise that after about three or four months that actually the audience hadn't gone away uh, and the revenue was still there to be had. So back to, first of all, the production factory uh, and said, um, right, can we upscale the orders again? And they said, no, sorry. And they'd sold their slots to their competitor. <laughs> um, then they went back and managed to find another sort of manufacturer, which took them six months to find. So they're now eight months behind. Wow. And then they set, they, managed, they managed to get the product manufactured. Then they went to the shipping company and said, hi, oh, yeah, we normally buy 50 containers off you and get that shipped each month. Can we have the 50 back? And they said, no, sorry, they've all gone to different competitors. Wow, okay. So they, by the time they'd got the shipping and the manufacturer all back in line, they'd lost 12, 13 months worth of trading. And what was mm-hmm. is they were now getting products delivered into the factory, into the warehouse in the UK that were 12 months out of date. So they were getting stock from 2021 yeah. with stock from 2020. So instantly they're at a lost leader on the 2020 stock. Everybody wants the 2021 stock. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that we're talking to people about at the minute, particularly in the retail space, is that we might need to make some efficiencies in spend, but let's not just pause everything. Let's just yeah. think more about it let's look at user experience let's look at conversion rate to gain some margin there uh, and let's not forget to tell the story a little bit because as i mentioned earlier in, in the chat if you start to engage your customers through the brand story and keep them tied into the fabric of your business generally speaking they, they will buy off you rather than a cheaper competitor because they believe in you and they generally have a longer term future value in terms of uh, each each of those customers as well. So there's a few different reasons why uh, not to not to pause. Um, yeah, they're, they're the sort of challenges that I'm facing. Definitely, mm-hmm. it's that, um, and I think clients are facing that uh, that ongoing battle of what do we do and how do we position our budget that that we're trying to help people with. Yeah, yeah, it's, it sort of goes back to what you said about jumping off the cliff, isn't it? But having the safety margins, I think we're all at a place where we're operating. Nobody knows. I think I can't remember which person it was that I was speaking to one of the podcasts I think during COVID it was they said they likened it to driving a Formula One car in in 
thick fog like we're all trying to go as fast as we can but nobody knows what's coming around the corner so yeah. you kind of have to have the safety margins but grit your teeth and just crack on as we say in yeah Russia. yeah absolutely it's like in flying they say taking off is optional but landing is mandatory <laughs> so if you, think of, if, you, if you think of a business that is in this taken off it's in the air and it's heading towards somewhere mm-hmm. on pause midair yes yeah, yeah. Just stop and say right i've had enough let's pause this um you've either got to land somewhere or you've got to change the course based mm-hmm. on what you see in front, whether it's weather or whether it's traffic or whatever. Yeah. So I often use that analogy with clients to say, right, well, we've, we've taken off. We're in, we're in the, we're in the, we're in flight level five million turnover, mm-hmm. and we need to stay here if not climb to the ten million turnover flight level. Um, stopping is not an option if you want to get there. Mm-hmm. So it's. So if that if we agree that stopping is not an option, then the other option is how do we change course? Uh, changing course is that uh, looking at ways of, of profitability, of, of changing the long-term value of a customer, reducing cost of acquiring the customer. There's loads of ways that we can change course mid-air with, the, with an e-commerce brand. Um, but I think the challenge is getting their head around, we can't pause the aircraft mid-air. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a good analogy, really good analogy. And so thinking about not pausing the aircraft, what's on, your, what's on the cards for the next 6, 9, 12 months? Well, so I mentioned at the start that um, I set up an agency called Hit Search about 16 years ago and recently mm-hmm. transitioned that into um, the revenue growth agency. So what we did is we divided Hit Search up into the e-commerce brands that now moved across into the revenue growth agency uh, and uh, another uh, brand that took on uh, the sort of insurance and legal clients, so the lead gen clients. So what within the revenue growth agency is we are now um, as becoming even more specialist in in the e-commerce space, particularly for luxury brands. Um, and what that sort of allows us to do is to start to, which we're doing at the minute actually, um, doing lots of interviews for very, very specific retail-focused uh, superstars. Uh, we can pack the agency now with uh, people from both client side uh, and also agency side um, that really just understand retail and they just, mm-hmm. I think the challenge with some agencies is that, and certainly within the walls of hit search, is that you're going to have a member of staff operating, you know, talking to a lawyer and creating content for a lawyer and looking at how we generate leads for a lawyer. And then the next, in the same day, two hours later, they're trying to switch their mindset away from that and into the e-commerce space and think, right, I'm now not talking about lead generation, I'm talking about cost of acquiring a customer, I'm talking about the, you know, position and so the language is different and, and everything is almost completely different so now we can just live and breathe e-commerce yeah uh, get even better than we are at what we do for clients uh, sculpt our offering and um, so the next sort of six 12 months really is just to um continue to establish ourselves as an e-commerce specialist and and uh, and continue the clients that we've we've got and grow in the their revenue we're having some fantastic results with that at the minute mm-hmm. The economic downturn and i think it's down to just what we've discussed on this call is just looking at different ways and going back to that aircraft analogy we're at the, the five million flight level and we just change course we, we don't pause and we don't give up somewhere you know we change tact uh, and, and and while a lot of people are starting to say oh i'm not spending anymore our clients are saying no we're going to continue we, we get what you're saying let's change course and they're benefiting from it mm-hmm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Andy, I really enjoy speaking with you. It's been a brilliant conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for taking the time to, to join us today. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it too, Amy. Thanks for getting in touch.